This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 15, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Julia Rosen talks about humanity-ending catastrophes, and Alex Kaselnik is here to discuss ducklings that imprint on differences. Dave Grimm's out this week. He'll be back next week. This week's issue has a whole section dedicated to natural hazards. Julia Rosen of previous science podcast fame is here to talk about her contribution, an article called Thinking the Unthinkable, which is, you know, just your basic overview of doomsday scenarios. Science has already picked an expiration date for life on this planet. When the sun starts to bake the earth in about a billion years, we're going to be gone. But it's not guaranteed that we'll make it to that exciting time. So, Julia, what are what are some of the likely catastrophes or not likely, but which ones are possible between now and when the sun ends human life for certain? Well, I think the first thing to emphasize is that we're not in any immediate danger right now. (laughs) Nothing is impending. It's interesting. I talk to people who actually are specialists in the field of catastrophic risk, and actually the majority of their work is on man-made catastrophes. So they say that the most likely thing is that we kill ourselves off, you know, nuclear war, bioengineered pandemics, or the effects of artificial intelligence or nanotechnology that that get out of control. Oh, and and climate change, right? And climate change, catastrophic climate change, yeah. Of course, there are natural hazards, extreme natural hazards that we know have happened in the past and that we know the mechanisms are still active and they could happen again. And so those include solar storms, in particular coronal mass ejections, and then obviously impacts of comets and asteroids. We know from the dinosaurs that that's really bad news for the animals, the species that are living on Earth when that happens. And also super volcanoes are a big one that a lot of people mention. And and that's the one that scares you the most, right? Why why is super volcanoes the big bad for you? Yeah, super volcanoes are scary, I think, because we can do the least about them. You know, we can take measures to reduce our vulnerability to solar storms and 
as I talk a lot about in the article, there's some really interesting technologies for how we could deflect an incoming object. But there's really nothing you can do to stop a supervolcano. I talked with Jacob Lowenstern, who's the scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcanic Observatory. And he says he gets lots of suggestions for ways that we could try to stop a volcanic eruption. But so far, scientists are pretty convinced that there's nothing we could do. We would have some warning, probably, although exactly when something bad was going to happen might be difficult to tell. So we would have some time to prepare, but the impacts on climate would just be very devastating and very long-lived, and it would it would be pretty global. So we would really have a challenge as a species. And they happen roughly every 100,000 years, you know, which is a long time from now. But geologically speaking, that's fairly frequent. Right. And what is the big effect of a supervolcano besides incinerating everything within, what, a few miles. What else would happen? Yeah, you don't want to be anywhere near a supervolcano when it erupts. And there's the ash, of course, which could cover most of a continent. And that's really problematic for growing food. It gets in electronics. It grounds airplanes. It's very problematic. But really, the big problem is the sulfate aerosols that form when volcanic gases are injected into the stratosphere. And those can cool climate by several degrees, maybe even five to 10 degrees Celsius for up to a decade. So we're basically looking at the end of agriculture as we know it. That's a really big problem. Like you can't stockpile enough food to feed six billion people for 10 years. It's just not possible. Right. And one of the sources you talked to actually mentioned that planet level disasters like the ones we're talking about are understudied, that there isn't this kind of research into these really scary problems. Why would that be? Why wouldn't this be, you know, number one priority? Is it because they're so rare? Yeah, I I think it's that classic low probability, high consequence problem. They're very rare, but if they happen, they're really bad. So, of course, he and many other people who study catastrophic risks think it's very important that we do study it. But that's not to say that we shouldn't also be studying these much more frequent, more moderate disasters, which are still really devastating. I mean, you can think about the tsunami and earthquake in Indonesia. I think he's just saying we really need to start also zooming out and looking at these things that haven't happened within recent human history or or really ever human history in some cases. And, you know, the understanding that these posed a real risk to the species isn't that old. I mean, when Comet Shoemaker-Levy crashed into Jupiter, a lot of people say that that was really a wake-up call, that big impacts happen in our solar system somewhat frequently. Before that, people said there was always kind of this giggle factor, like, haha, you're you're talking about the end of the world. You know, that's that's not science. Right. It's the domain of fiction and and religion, but not science. Right. So my least favorite is a space related event. It's the Carrington event, Carrington like events where a coronal mass ejection basically zaps all the major electrical grids on the planet. So how likely are those type events? That was quite a while ago, right? Yeah, the Carrington event was in 1859. We do think that they might happen once every few centuries. So again, that's that's frequent, not on a single person's lifetime, but in human history. And we have had other big ones recently. We had one in 1989 that took out power in Quebec. Canada. And there was another one in 2003 that struck the power grid in Sweden. Those were smaller than the Carrington event, but they were still pretty big. One caveat, this wouldn't take out all grids everywhere. It would strike like part of a continent, but it could strike multiple continents and the consequences could be really devastating. The good news is the reason why why I'm not that worried about that is that there's already been a huge amount of attention 
coming to this issue in the last few years. And so grid operators have really started to mobilize. There's a effort at the government level and the, and the international level even to try to decide what type of an event the grid needs to be prepared for and to take steps to make the grid resilient to that type of coronal mass ejection. So I think that we're on top of that one as much as we can be. And that's not just because of the risk from the sun, right? Yeah. So it's possible that a enemy could use something called an electromagnetic pulse attack to basically cripple our electronic infrastructure. And so a lot of the same measures that would make us less vulnerable to a solar storm will also make us less vulnerable to an EMP attack. That one almost sounds not as scary as when I first started thinking about it. What it, what makes something this humanity-threatening level disaster? How do scientists decide which things fit in this category? Yeah, that's that's tricky, and there's a lot of debate in the literature. Um, obviously, there's really no line in the sand. People have tried to use metrics like 100 million people dead or 10% of the population affected or $100 billion of losses. There's a lot of various thresholds that people have tried to use. I interviewed for the story Seth Baum from the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute, and their definition is significant permanent harm to civilization. So that's like setting us back in this way that we're not going to recover. You know, it could permanently change the trajectory of human civilization. So as terrible as many recent events have been, they're not talking about events like 9-11. They're not talking about events like the 2004 tsunami. They're talking about truly civilization-altering events. And you kind of heard some philosophizing from these folks. What what makes them decide to study this? What kinds of things are they thinking about when they think about the unthinkable? Well, for the most part, they, they seem to be having a pretty good time, <laughs> despite the somewhat dark subject matter. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things out there. Like one idea that I found really fascinating is that there has been an argument in the past that all of these things aren't really that bad because we're still here. And how could yeah. we be here if bad stuff happened all the time? But one of the people I talked to said, you know, it's sort of it's like an observation bias. We happen to live on a planet where nothing bad has happened. And so intelligent life has evolved. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other planets and other solar systems where intelligent life used to exist and a bad thing happened and now it doesn't. So this sort of dovetails with the Drake equation, like why haven't we seen more evidence for intelligent civilizations in the universe? And there's some people who think there's something called the great filter, which is that either it's really hard to start life in the first place, harder than we think, or something happens to advanced civilizations where they tend to go extinct. Some of these scenarios are... They basically give you no warning and they're completely unpreventable, like a supernova. What can we do to plan ahead for things that uh, are completely unpreventable? Yeah, that's a really good question. One thing that you see if you think about a lot of these disasters, both of the natural and the man-made variety, is that one of their main really devastating effects is their impact on the food system. So there are some people who think that one of the best things that we could do sort of in the event of anything really bad happening, is have some backup plans in place for how we can produce food in non-traditional ways. And so there's actually a researcher, David Denkenberger, who's a member of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute that I mentioned earlier. And he's actually written, together with Joshua Pierce, they have written a book called Feeding Everyone No Matter What. And so they're both engineers. And so they just, you know, they didn't actually 
do these experiments, but they said, okay, you know, how much mushroom biomass can you grow on a dead tree? And how much methane digesting bacteria can you grow on natural gas? And they basically came up with all of these ways that even if we didn't have very much sunlight, we could actually produce alternative foods that would supply enough calories to to get the majority of the surviving population through a long period of basically no agriculture. So, I mean, it's really out there stuff, but their argument is let's think about this now. We have all the time in the world to have interesting thoughts about how we might handle this. But if we don't do anything and then something bad happens, trying to cobble together a plan after the fact is is not going to be a great option. I don't know. After reading this story and talking to you about it, this seems scary, but it also seems like science is progressing and trying to address these things. Are you given hope by this? Or, you know, we didn't really talk too much about the political hurdles, the funding hurdles here. Do you feel like the research is progressing at a good clip and that we're going to see progress in some of these areas? Yeah, I think so. I think certainly in the area of solar storms and also with asteroid deflections, although one of the proposed tests that NASA wanted to do is now facing funding problems, so it may not happen. But I think that there has been a lot of thought put towards this, and I'm I'm optimistic that technology will provide some buffer for the impact of these natural disasters. However, you know, at the same time, advancement of technology is one thing that might make a man-made disaster more likely. So I guess it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> right. Well, Julia, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Julia Rosen is a freelance writer and sometimes host of the Science Podcast. Her story this week is part of a big package on natural hazards. Read about contemplating extreme catastrophes, machines built to test doomsday scenarios, slow earthquakes, and more in this week's issue. If you're listening to the Science Podcast, you probably care a lot about science, want to know more, want to keep up to date, increase the breadth of your knowledge. And so you should really consider signing up for the Great Courses Plus video learning service. It's just what it sounds like, a website with 7,000 video lectures on topics ranging from history, cooking, photography, and of course, science. The lectures are presented by award-winning professors and podcast listeners can get a month of unlimited access to all of these lectures. And now I want to make special mention of a course called Understanding the Brain, which is presented by Professor Jeanette Norden. And she does a wonderful job walking through the basics of the brain all the way through function, when the functions go wrong, some of the more interesting things that happen in the brain, pain, for example, dreaming. It's really worth checking out if you want to brush up on your neuroscience. If you sign up for The Great Courses Plus today as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get a free month of unlimited access to understanding the brain and all the other wonderful lectures on thegreatcoursesplus.com. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. It's kind of taken for granted. It's almost common knowledge that young ducks will pick a target and zero in on it and follow it, but we don't know exactly what imprinting is. And and how such a very young animal is able to do this. 
Alex Kiselnik is here to talk about his group's paper that reveals just how complex this behavior truly is. Alex, let's start with the basics. Is imprinting special to ducks? Yeah, most people do it, or most uh, organi- most animals do it. The basic thing is that whenever in a species the young are mobile from early on and the parents have to look after them, both parties need to recognize the family um, because the adults don't want to waste effort in protecting or feeding babies which are not their own. And the babies want to avoid the potential aggression and dangers of following anything which is not their own mom or dad or or both of them in the case of swans, for example. So it's a very general thing. And in different species, different senses are involved. What the duckling needs is to recognize its own mum. And because of that, it has to involve learning because every female duck may look a little different. But at the same time, they are very subtle. So that's why learning has to be very precise and is quite a difficult achievement. So what was known from the beginning, actually, by now, uh, over a 100 years, really, is that newborn birds that actually walk and move very quickly after hatching, they are very good to study this problem because they very quickly start moving around and they need to follow the right adult. The first idea was very simple, as nice ideas start. And people thought, oh, yeah, they look at mom and they follow her because they recognize it. Well, when you think of it, it's terribly complicated because mom can turn around, be at different distances, flap her wings. You can have different angles and all sorts of different things. And, and you still have to form a general concept of mum, and that must include many bits of information that all together inform the duckling, this is the mother duck to follow. We don't really know how all these different aspects of the signals emitted by mum can be used by the babies. Your experimental setup sought to tease out which aspects of the object or the parent or the child are used in imprinting. And you found that it was more than just the visual features, what mom looks like. What did you do? How did you represent a mom in mama duck in your experiment? What different objects did you use? To tell you the truth, this is a kind of historical. My graduate student, Anton Martino, and myself were debating for a nice final project to round up his thesis. And we wanted something that would be sexy and risky and exciting if it worked. And we came up with this idea. What if the ducklings actually can learn any abstract property of the mother, like whether she has changing moods or she's very stable and whether she looks (laughs) homogeneous? What is it that could actually, what kind of abstract properties could the duckling use? This seemed as off the wall as one could think and still have chance of working. So we thought, okay, let's see if a duckling would imprint on the concept of equal or the concept of different. And the basic idea of the experiment is this. It's conceptually very simple. The animal, as soon as it is born, is shown two stimuli, which are either equal to each other 
or different from each other. And these are two objects which are tied together and they move around and the duckling is allowed to follow it spontaneously. And after a, about 20 minutes, they are returned to a quite dark room and sometime later, half an hour, one hour later, they are exposed now to two sets of objects. And two of them are equal to each other and two of them are different to each other, but they are all new objects. The duckling has never seen any of them. Now the duckling has a choice. Which of these pairs is going to follow? The ducklings were divided in groups. One group had seen two equal objects and the other group has seen two different objects. And what we found is that 75% of the ducklings actually followed the objects having the relation that they had seen during the imprinting phase. It was about the same proportion, whether it was equal or different, but even more interesting to us is that it was the same whether we did the experiment with shapes or with colors. We did a first experiment with different shapes or equal shapes, and they did it. So in that setting, it would be two cubes or a sphere and a cube, and then they could tell whether they were the same or different. And then the second set of objects, again, different shapes, same or That's different. right, which could be prisms or cones or things like that, which were not shapes that the ducklings had seen before. So what are the ducks doing that they can abs- take the abstract fact that there's a difference between these two objects and say, well, there's a difference between those other two objects. That must be mom. We, we don't know that for sure yet. For example, two objects which are equal also have a different kind of symmetry from right. two objects which are different. So maybe that is a property such as symmetry that they are picking up. And we have to make more transformations of the experiments until we clarify exactly what is it that they are abstracting. That's a, You can make that same argument when the colors are the same or different, right? They are looking for something uniform in color versus modeled or something like that. Exactly. Um, it really all seems to suggest that they were picking up their relation between them. It's worth adding that... What this thing is called relational concept learning, right? And relational concept learning has been shown in other animals before, but typically this has been taught to animals by reinforcing the right response to objects that keep a relationship that the experimenter chooses. And it's been slow, difficult to train, Right, like the, um, like parrots can do this. You can say, pick the blue thing, and they'll pick a blue thing out of an array of objects because they've been taught. Yes, but even more so, pick the same thing right. or pick the different thing. Right. Um, even honeybees can do something similar in a sense. What they do is you can show them one object, and a time later you can show them two, and they have to prefer the one which is either the same or different from the one they've seen before. Is different because they are not abstracting a relationship in the sample. They are just remembering. They have to hold in their memory the object they've seen before and then make a choice. But it's related to this concept. When people have done it in baboons or in humans or in crows, highly intelligent animals, they have to allow the subject to infer that it is a relationship that matters 
and not the objects themselves. Now, the ducklings seem to have this predisposition. And that, to us, means that probably brains in general tend to categorize information much more than we think, adding these kind of properties to the normal ones, like the sensory input. Are you suggesting that this happens much earlier than we thought, or that it's surprising that it can be happening at all in ducks? Or Let me first say that things are surprising relatively to what we expect. Right. For this reason, at this moment, discovering this in ducks and in newborn ducks is surprising because we didn't know it happened. But I hope that in uh, some time from now, this is going to be the expectation. We are going to assimilate this. We are going to accept that the brain works in slightly different form than the ones that we intuit, because the brain is probably continuously extracting abstract properties of the things that come to it, either as sounds or visual inputs or relations between them. And all of this is probably stored as a as a very long vector, a long, if you want, a long matrix of properties for each particular learning task. And this is what the brain is accumulating. Does what you found here fit in with the rest of the work that your, your group does in your lab? Does it make sense in that context? Well, it does and it doesn't. In, um, we work on a, a range of different topics which have something in common. We want to understand how the psychology of animals matches the biological conditions in which they live and the problems they solve normally in nature. We worked for a long time on things like how animals take decisions under uncertainty. And we try to use biological thinking to predict what they ought to do. So from that point of view, this fits. Now, I've never worked on ducks before. I never worked on imprinting before. And from the point of view of the precise object of study, this is a novelty. This has been a novelty week for me. Okay, Alex, thanks so much for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Alex Kaselnik is founder and head of the Behavioral Ecology Research Group at the University of Oxford. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>